You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 95 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a 23-year-old dancer who was perhaps lured to her death after receiving a text to perform at a private party. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Kellyanne Voice. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Angela Jean Ann Barlow, or Angie as she was known to family and friends, was born on August 21, 1993 in Denver, Colorado, to Stephen and Christina Barlow Kramer. Angie received a high school diploma from the Career Center and was active in softball and bowling. Angie was very close to her family, and especially with her younger sisters. As an adult, Angie began working as a dancer, which took her family by surprise. Her parents weren't crazy about the idea, but they loved their daughter and reluctantly supported her decision. They were mainly concerned with the danger that sometimes comes with that line of work. Those worries would prove to be warranted on the night of October 26, 2016. 
23-year-old Angie Barlow, in addition to dancing at clubs, would sometimes do private parties and events. On the 26th, Angie was scheduled to dance at an apartment in the landmark apartments and townhouses in Indianapolis. It was a surprise for a woman's husband on their anniversary. Angie accepted this booking via text message from an unknown number because the pay was decent, and she had recently returned from a vacation in Miami, which depleted much of her funds. Although Angie normally was wary of taking work that was arranged via an unknown person or anonymous text, the opportunity to earn extra money was too good to pass up. Angie received vague instructions to wear a bra and underwear set in either black or red to match the client's planned outfit, and she also was given the gate code to the apartment complex where the client lived. Since Angie was aware that there were risks with her job, going to strangers' homes and not knowing what kind of people were hiring her for private parties, she tried to be safe about it. And that night, she sent her roommate, Mona, a text with the address of the party, the gate code, and a message that read, Doing a private party at this address, just in case I go missing. LOL. At 11.45 p.m., Angie sent a photo of herself smiling to Mona on Snapchat. It looked like she was in the bathroom of the apartment, and happy. Everything seemed normal. But that was the last contact from Angie. The next day, on October 27th, no one had heard from Angie. She didn't respond to anyone's text, and her calls went to voicemail. Angie's mom, Christina, went to Angie's apartment, and noticed that it didn't look like she had ever made it home from the party. Her dog, a Yorkie named Pablo, had been left alone with no food or water, And this is what proved to Christina that something was wrong. Angie would have never left him unattended, and she wasted no time in reporting her daughter missing. Angie's roommate Mona went to the address she had been texted and tried to open the gate with the code that Angie had given her, but it didn't unlock the gate. Mona actually climbed the fence and found the right unit, but no one answered the door. She had to let police do their job. Although there was no sign of Angie, the police did have some clues to work with. They first reviewed the available surveillance footage from the night Angie was at the apartment complex, and they saw her blue Pontiac G6 leaving the complex at 3.29 a.m. In the video, a black car follows closely behind her car. The drivers of the two cars can't be identified in the footage because it was so dark, and the video is grainy but the black car's license plate was legible, and it came back to a Raven Miller. Police talked to Raven Miller and her boyfriend, Baron McCullough, and determined that they were the host of the private party that Angie had been hired for on October 26th. Upon hearing this information, Angie's family and friends believed that Angie was tricked into accepting this job, and that perhaps someone else may have answered the door, because Angie knew Baron and Raven. She had once dated Baron and wasn't on the best of terms with him. In the minds of Angie's parents, there was no way her daughter would have danced privately for Raven and Baron. Police talked with the couple, and Raven and Baron claimed that Angie had left the party with someone else that night, and that they stayed home. Angie's parents put up billboards with her photo and number to a tip line. A $5,000 reward for information leading to Angie's whereabouts was offered. On November 7th, Angie's car was found abandoned just eight miles from the apartment on Harcourt Road, where she was last known to be. There was a lot of damage to the car. 
It had been rummaged through, and there was a large dent in the passenger door. There were cracks in the windows and the headlights. According to Christina, it looked like the car had went underneath a wire fence. Swabs of a liquid substance found inside the car were taken for DNA testing. Police had found Angie's car, but unfortunately, there was no sign of her. Then there was a troubling incident in which someone tried to con Angie's family. Roughly $8,000 was fraudulently withdrawn from Angie's grandmother, Sharon's bank account. Four people were arrested in relation to the fraud, but their arrest didn't bring police any closer to finding Angie. And according to the people they arrested, they knew nothing about her disappearance. One of the people arrested, Michelle Brown, claimed that she didn't know Sharon Barlow, but she knew her bank account's routing number and picked a random account number to go with it. According to police, the information that was used to commit the fraud was specific information that Angie Barlow would have access to. And the idea was there that perhaps she had given this information up under duress. Just a month after the fraud arrest, on June 20th, 2017, police received an anonymous tip claiming that Angie was dead and pointing investigators to her body. The location, less than 10 miles from the apartment she was last known to be at, was a home that had been abandoned for quite a while, with the current homeowner having recently moved in. It also reportedly had once been rented previously by one of Barron's family members. Sure enough, just as the tipster reported, a body was found in a shallow grave in the backyard and was quickly identified as Angie Barlow by her tattoos. The news devastated Angie's family, and although ending one ordeal for them, it was just the beginning of a new ordeal, wondering who killed Angie and why. Police have investigated the theory that Angie was murdered in the apartment on Harcourt Road the night she vanished, and that it wasn't her driving her car away from the complex. They've tried to be tight-lipped about Angie's cause of death, but a reporter accidentally revealed that Angie was shot. The investigation seemed to focus on Raven and Barron. Many people are very suspicious of Raven in particular. The pair apparently moved to Phoenix shortly after Angie went missing. It led many people to vilify Raven for fleeing after Angie went missing. But in a video rant in response, Raven explained she moved about six months after Angie went missing, and that she was already planning to move when her boyfriend was done with probation and didn't have to check in weekly with his probation officer. From what's being reported, Raven and Barron aren't sharing too much information with investigators. If Raven and Barron are behind what happened to Angie, someone else might be involved too. Angie went into the apartment and was comfortable enough to take a selfie in the bathroom instead of texting a friend for help. And as I mentioned earlier, Angie's family feels that she never would have knowingly entered Raven and Barron's home that night if one of them answered the door. If that's true, who else was there and answered the door? Police do not have any evidence that Raven and Barron are connected to any of the people involved in the fraud involving Sharon Barlow. But police have also said that the fraud is likely somehow linked to Angie's disappearance and murder. And they have indicated that Raven and Barron are persons of interest in Angie's case. This month marks five years since Angie was murdered. And her family is desperate to know the truth about her death. And they'd like to see the person or persons responsible held accountable. 
If you have any information about the murder of Angie Barlow, please contact Crime Stoppers USA at 800-222-TIPS. Angie's mom, Christina, sat down with me to discuss her daughter's case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, it's hard to believe, but summer's over. Now we're officially in fall. But just because the season's changed, doesn't mean that things that have been weighing on us suddenly disappear. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, I'm happy to tell you there's help. And that help is BetterHelp. BetterHelp online counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from anxiety, depression, and grief, to sleep issues, LGBT matters, and family conflicts, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com slash family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hey everyone, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Gainful. Right now, I think a lot of us are trying to get healthy, and there's nothing more personal than your health. So when it comes to finding the right nutrition supplements to meet your fitness goals, you need a personalized approach. Thankfully, now there's Gainful, the personalized nutrition system that's formulated for your body and goals. Gainful gives you peace of mind that your protein, hydration, and pre-workout supplements contain the finest ingredients, specifically for you. You can get started by taking the 5-Minute Gainful Quiz. Gainful considers your dietary needs, goals, and unique physiology to personalize your formula. Gainful delivers your supplements with no shipping charge every month, and you can cancel any time or adapt your plan as needed. All Gainful products are formulated by their on-staff registered dietitians and are backed by pro-level exercise science. On their science advisory board, and every gainful customer gets complimentary one-on-one access to their registered dietitian, available anytime to answer your questions. And Gainful's rigorous quality control process ensures that your supplements only have clean ingredients that you can pronounce, along with zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners. I tried the strawberry lemonade hydration powder and the watermelon pre-workout, and they're both great. My goal was to stay hydrated and energized during my workout and after, and Gainful did the trick. Best of all, you can tailor the flavor of your proteins to suit your taste buds with a variety of delicious flavors like rich chocolate, Madagascar vanilla, and strawberry cream, just to name a few. Start your personalized fitness journey today with Gainful. To get $20 off your personalized supplements, go to Gainful.com slash murder. That's Gainful.com slash murder, and you'll get $20 off. Gainful, personalized nutrition made for your taste. Hi, Christina, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your daughter Angie's case with us. Hi. It's good to have you here. I know from the details and the research that uh, Angie's case has a lot of twists and turns, and uh, we'll dive into that. But just to start off, would you mind telling us a little bit about Angie and uh, what kind of person she was, some of your memories of her? Sure. Um, she was She was a... 23-year-old, young, beautiful woman. She uh, 
she never really asked for anything from me and her dad. She was making her own way in the world. Um, she was definitely a doting big sister. She was absolutely adored her three younger sisters. They, you know, she, they were her world. She, uh, went to a lot of their programs and ball games and stuff and she'd come and get them and take them home with her on the weekend sometimes and where she'd show up at the house and you know they'd wake everybody up in the middle of the night about three o'clock in the morning or so (laughs) if she was in town and um she'd go hang out at some of the local bars if she would come back home for the weekend or whatever and she would hang out with her friends and Next thing you know, she's walking in the door about three o'clock in the morning, waking people up and they'd watch horror movies and make me cook dinner. Well, I guess you would call it a midnight snack or breakfast or, (laughs) um, she was, she was a free spirit. She, she definitely, she lived life. So it sounds like she was a regular oldest sister uh, yeah. wanted to have fun and uh, spend time with family yeah. and, and do that kind of stuff. And, oh yeah. But she was still independent and out on her own as well. Yes. Yes. She, she lived in Indianapolis and we live in Muncie. So, you know, it, it took a little over an hour to get to her house from here. How often did you get to see each other? Was it pretty regular? It, it was pretty regular. Um, her youngest sister, Zarima, she had a lot of health issues when she was born. So she had, uh, about nine specialists up at Riley hospital, which is in Indianapolis. And Angie would always meet us over at Riley hospital. She went to a lot of appointments with us and, you know, then we would go out and have lunch or something afterwards. So she was, she was really close to her baby sister. There was 18 years and four months to the day between the two of them, but (laughs) they, they were really close. She would call and FaceTime her throughout the day and, you know, they video chatted a lot, but, um, so we we actually got to see her quite a bit because of that because you know we were going up to the hospital for doctor's appointments probably eight times a month at least. Wow! Just between the different specialists. Yeah, but despite all that running around and the distance, you always found the time to connect. Yes, yes, and yeah. and she always you know she would make trips into Muncie on occasion just to. You know, just either come in and see friends and family or if uh, if there was a family event going on, which seems like almost every weekend, you know, somebody had something, you know, whether it was a birthday party or um, holidays or, or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, she always made time for family. Uh, and Angie initially disappeared in October 2016 after going to a, a house party uh, where she was yes. being perform uh paid to perform as a dancer yes and she worked as an as a dancer in in that area and in different bars and establishments um was that something she did on the side uh doing like these parties in addition to the the regular places she would work at yeah um she didn't do them very often um from what we were told we never we didn't really ask her too much about her job um as you know being being parents it's not really something that you were you know okay with but 
she she liked what she did and so she she did it but uh from what we know her doing the private parties wasn't it wasn't something she did all the time um but if she was kind of short on some cash if somebody were to ask her to perform at a private party sometimes she would and we sometimes hear stories that dancers in, in particular are, are at risk because they're dealing with strangers, people they don't know that they're coming in contact with. Um, yeah. It can be a, a dangerous job. Did Angie have any kind of concerns that she ever voiced to you or did you have any concerns for her, uh, maybe from her work that she might be in danger at any point? Uh, well, she, she definitely heard a lot about that for me and her dad, um, just, you know, for the simple fact of what she did and we hated it. I mean, we, we accepted her and her choices and, you know, but we didn't have to, to like it, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I know there was a lot of times that I had made comments to her about, you know, she knew that we, that we really didn't like what she did for a living, and that, you know, sometimes bad things happen, even to good people who are, you know, doing things like that. And um, it just so happened uh, about a year before she was murdered, she was raped. And at the time um, that that had happened, she was told by police because she told him who the guy was and, and all this other stuff. And um when she had called me after it happened, I mean, I I drove right up there and met him at the hospital. But uh, and the police seemed to be real cooperative at first, and then a while later, um, it, it was probably close to a year later, she had called them, wanting to know, you know, what was going on with it because we were told I was I was standing there whenever the detective told her, we know who this guy is, you know, we're gonna bring him in. Um then they were just kind of telling her that they were just chalking it up to the job that, you know, that she worked that job and that was just kind of saying it was her fault. Sort of blaming her for being in that industry and, and dismissing what happened to her. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, it wasn't until after Angie went missing that a different detective was um, looking into things as far as her rape. And they had contacted me about it because she was a missing person. And, um, you know, let me know, hey, we've, we've got this guy in here and, you know, and all this other stuff, but we can't really hold him to anything because your daughter's missing. So this was sort of a, a turned into a situation where she wasn't around to be able to confront him or, or give her side of the story. So it sort of didn't go any place. Right. Right. Okay. So he, he, he got away with, he, well, I know he got away with raping her. Um, but his DNA, you know, was in the system after, at least after that. And, uh, so I don't know if they had brought him in because he had did it to someone else or, you know, exactly. They didn't go into detail on it. And, you know, with me having a missing child, I really didn't ask. Sure. Um, cause, you know, my focus was just kind of on where's my daughter. Yeah. And and how did 
Angie racked that lack of anything happening and sort of being brushed off. Was that tough for her? It it really was. Um, Because I remember after she had talked to him at the police department and, you know, they were just, you know, kind of dismissive of it. Um, She actually called me crying and, you know, and told me what had happened. And I mean, she, she was really upset about it and I was upset of course, you know, but it just, it, it just, it seems awful that just because somebody does a certain thing for a living that they, they're not allowed to be a victim. Yeah. It's almost what it seems like. There's, there's like some kind of double standard. Uh, yeah. I see that a lot when, when there's any kind of people that are in that kind of industry or sex workers or whatever, the, they're almost dismissed as if they're they're putting themselves in in harm's way, and it's almost their fault. Yeah. Did she take any new precautions as a result of that? Was there any things she did to stay safe uh, to keep herself protected after that? Um, I don't know if she did anything different than what she normally did. Um, in that situation, um, it was, it was somebody that she knew and he had held a gun to her head. So I, I think she was maybe a little bit more cautious about who she was around, like when she would leave the club type of thing. Um, you know, made, made sure that, you know, she walked out to her car with more than one person or, you know, I can only imagine this made you maybe more worried or more concerned for her after that. Yeah, it it did. And you sort of hit the nail on the head. She's an adult. She's she's allowed to to do this, um, but that doesn't change your your wanting to make sure she's okay and you're you're worrying about her. I think any parent um, has those uh, thoughts, no matter where their their child is or what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and let's go to when, let's shift to when she, she did go missing. Uh, she went to a house party at a place called Landmark Apartments and Townhomes in Indianapolis. Yeah. That was on October yeah. 26, 2016. She received an anonymous text asking for her to, to come and dance at this party. Do you know, was that a normal procedure for her? Would she just get text out of the blue like that to, to randomly show up places. And um, the fact that it was anonymous, was that concerning at all to her or did she, did she not worry about it too much? Uh, so I, sometimes she just did get people just messaging her, asking her if she would perform at a private party. Um, this particular number had that it wasn't the first time that they had contacted her. They had contacted her a few times over a few different months, um, wanting her to come and do this private party. And she kept declining. Um, you know, they, the girl sent pictures of, you know, somebody who obviously wasn't her. Um, there, there was a lot of lying going on, you know, trying to lure her to this party. Um, and then finally, when she had went to Miami, she came home, she was broke and she needed some money. And she was like, you know, why not? Um, so she decided to do that. 
And I guess one precaution that she always did make whenever she would do something like that was she always sent a group of her friends the address and phone numbers to the place that she was going, which is how we knew where she was. Yeah, so it wasn't a mystery where she went. She People knew right. um, there was an address she was given. She went there, and actually her vehicle was captured on video surveillance arriving there after 11 p.m. Uh, and then yes. it's been reported that she posted a video to social media or sent a video to someone after that. Is that correct? From the party? Yeah, it was it was a, a Snapchat. She had uh, recorded like a quick video on a Snapchat. And that was posted on her Snapchat. It was around 11.45 p.m. on the 26th. So it was sometime after that um, that something had happened to her. All we can really do is speculate that uh, she was killed on the 27th. Okay, so we know that she she arrived there a a little bit before midnight, uh, sent a a message that she was there and, and... uh, then something happened at close to 3.30, her vehicle seen on surveillance leaving uh, the, the residence, followed closely by another car, and that other car would return 45 minutes later. So um, this movement seemed kind of suspicious, and we'll talk about that shortly, but it's after this that your daughter was never seen alive again. When and how did you realize that Angie was missing and uh, what uh, initially alerted you to that? Um, it was October 27th, um, you know, the, the very next day after the party. Um, it was probably a little after 4 p.m., I think. Um, her her best friend who was also her roommate uh they were almost inseparable those two um she had she called me and she was like hey moms i think we might have a problem but i don't want you to freak out and i'm like okay what's going on you know and she's and she said sis didn't come home last night she said i'm i'm worried and you know and then she had sent me a screenshot of you know, the in case I go missing message. And um, so the first thing I did, you know, I I hang up from Tracy and I start calling, you know, I'm calling Angie, I don't get anything. Um, The phone number that was attached to that message, I called that number. And nobody answered. So, you know, I just hung up. Um, A little while later, that number had called me back and they said, did you call this number? I said, well, yeah, who's this? And she said, this is Nicole. And I said, oh, well, I'm looking for someone named Raven. And because at this time, you know, we had found out who, who lived there and, you know, who was actually having the party. And, um, she said, well, that that's me. I'm Raven. And I said, well, I'm looking for my daughter. And she said, well, I, I, who's your daughter? And I said, Angie. She said, I don't know an Angie. I, then it, you know, kind of clicked on me. I was like, I wonder if it was her stage name. And I said, well, I'm looking for Diamond. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Diamond. 
And I said, okay, where is she? She said, well, she was here, but she left at like three o'clock in the morning with some guy. What happened at that point? Did you immediately become worried or did you think maybe she had just gone out and, and uh, was going to show up later on? I mean, I, I was like worried from the get go because um, like all of it was out of character for Angie. Um, not to call someone afterwards, you know, just a lot of things just really didn't add up. But, you know, I was still just kind of keeping hope alive. You know, I'm like, oh, well, you know, maybe she got drunk and she's just, you know, hung out somewhere, or, you know, but in the back of my mind, I'm I'm still a mom. And my first thing is just worry. And so I'm still calling Angie and, you know, no answers. So I just, I start calling like tow yards and I'm like, well, you know, maybe her car got towed somewhere. Maybe she's in the hospital. And, you know, I start calling hospitals. Um, I started calling jails. I'm looking at number, you know, everywhere between Muncie and Indianapolis, I'm calling. If, you know, if there was a hospital around any of those areas, I was calling them. Um, and the one that was really hard, which I, I didn't want to do it, but I did. Um, I, I actually called the morgue because I just, I had no idea where my kid was. And that was not something that I wanted to do. And I, I don't even know why I did. It was just kind of like, I've got to find my child and I have to make sure that she's not there. And, um, and, you know, nothing, nothing was coming up and I, uh, was, you know, posted on Facebook and, you know, I went to social media. I'm like, Hey, if, you know, if anybody's seen Angie, tell Angie, I need her to call me, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, Angie, call me. Um, and just had never heard anything. Uh, so it, it sounds like you, we're trying to stay calm, but in the back of your mind, you had a, a nagging feeling that you should be digging. Yeah. And I want to touch on something you said a little bit earlier. You said that uh, one of the messages uh, was a, a quote unquote, in case I go missing uh, text. Can can you talk a little bit more about that? Was that something she set up that if she was in trouble, she would send or? Um, no, she just... I I don't know if she always included the in case I go missing on there. Um, but when like I said, whenever she would do a private party, she always wanted, you know, this certain group of people to know exactly where she was. Um, but I was also told by some of her friends that like her gut instinct was like telling her not to do this. Um so, you know, in the back of her mind, she was actually really worried about it from what we can gather just by, you know, talking to people who was around her that day. Um, so I don't know if that was just kind of, you know, her way of trying to play it off and be funny, which, you know, Angie, she had kind of a crazy sense of humor, um, you know, with stuff like that. But so I, you know, it. It could have just been, you know, because she put LOL after it and, you know, laughing faces and, you know, but it 
it was actually true. And yeah. that's what happened. And so it, it sounds like in a way she was prepping herself, you know, you know, even in a joking way saying, Hey, I, if something happens, here's where I am just yeah. leaving some kind of message. It's, it was determined pretty quickly that the person who had set the party up, uh, wasn't a stranger to Angie. Uh, it was a man that yeah. she knew, someone named Baron McCullough and his girlfriend, Raven Miller. Uh, can you tell yeah. us a bit about how Angie knew them? And from, yeah, from what we were told by uh, people that knew all of them from the clubs was that uh, Raven and Baron had been together, but Angie had dated Baron at one point. Um, which they had, they were at the very least spending some time together, but I don't know if it was during the time that Raven and Baron were broken up or if he was just cheating on her. One way or another, they uh, weren't together any longer and, and, uh, Baron was with his girlfriend, current girlfriend, Raven at the time. Yes. And do you know yeah. how long before she went missing that uh, she had spent time with this Baron guy? From what I could figure out from other people, um, it it had been a few months. And I've seen reported that it, you know Angie was not on good terms with Baron. Um, yeah. And do you can you? expand on that do you know why that was that i'm really not sure um i know there was they from what we were told there was um a lot of beef between angie and raven and i'm assuming that it was you know because of baron so perhaps some kind of love triangle or jealousy or something along those lines yeah yeah do you think Angie would have ever gone to this party had she known that it was Baron and Raven that were having her come there? No. And no, she would not have. You think she would have, uh, because she knew that this beef was ongoing, do you think she would have uh, felt in danger there or just because she didn't want the drama? Uh, probably probably both. Probably both. I'm just just knowing Angie, it it was both. Yeah. So, uh, did police question Baron and Raven right away, and how cooperative were they? Um, it it wasn't right away. Um, I had I after I got the phone call about her being missing. Um, I had called IMPD, and I was like, I need to know how long it is until I can file a missing persons report. I said, I, you know, I'm, she's an adult, and I've heard, you know, do I have to wait 24 hours? And they was like, no, that's a myth. You can file a missing persons report at any time. I said, okay. So made a trip to Indianapolis, filed a missing persons report. Um, later on, I get a phone call from the detective who was assigned to her case. He asked a few questions and then he just set her case file down on his desk and he went on vacation. So for four days, nobody was looking for Angie, but her family and friends. 
Well, that's that's valuable time too, when when the case is yes. just starting out. That time is uh, important early on. Yes, and we didn't know this until um, I had found that there was video surveillance at the apartment complex. Um, so at one point, the people at the apartment complex was telling us that if we came, that they would show us the video. So we showed up. And then they tell me, well, we can't show you this without a warrant, so you need a cop. Okay. So, you know, and I'd been trying to get a hold of the missing persons detective for a few days. I never did get a phone call back. Um, So we went and tried to hunt down the missing persons unit, which was not easy because in Indianapolis, there's not a sign that says, hey, this is where you need to be. It's almost like it's hidden. And you literally have to find it. Um, but we eventually found it. And when we got there, um, you have to hit a buzzer. And then somebody talks to you over an intercom. And then, you know, somebody will come down. Um, when they came down and got us, we explained to him what was going on. I'm like, you know, and I was trying to give them all the information I had. And they brought me in. And then they set me in like an interrogation room. And then another detective walks in and, you know, she talks to me for a few minutes and then she leaves the room and then she comes back with Angie's file. And she tells me, she said, oh, well, he went on vacation and this was on his desk. So then she's the one who started the investigation. She went to the apartment and managed to get the um, get the surveillance video. I, I don't know if she, you know, had to go through the whole warrant process first or what, but um, I, I know that she was the one that had got the ball rolling on things. Hey, listeners, this is Mike Morford. There's so much going on in the world. Whether it's stuff you're excited about, like going out for a walk, or going to the gym, or stuff you'd rather not think about, like finally starting that project around the house you've been putting off. You can't always control the vibes out there, but you can always control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. I've been listening to all of my music and podcasts on my Raycon earbuds, whether I'm cleaning dishes for 10 or 15 minutes, taking a quick walk around the block, or spending an hour editing a podcast. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work or work out. Raycons are my go-to for on-the-go audio. And the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. With an improved rubber oil look and feel, my red Raycons look sharp and feel comfortable. And they have optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. These are impressive before you even start listening. You get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best, with just the right amount of bass. Pure mode, podcast listening, blues, instrumental, etc. Balanced mode for podcast listening, rock and heavy metal. And bass mode for hip-hop, EDM, reggae, etc. There's also an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead. Raycon offers 8 hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, the Murder of My Family listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash T-M-I-M-F. Once again, to save 15% off your Raycon order, go to buyraycon, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash T-M-I-M-F. 
to save 15% off Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash T-M-I-M-F. So it was, it, it was probably a few weeks after she went missing before they brought them in for questioning. Um, because at first nobody could even find them. They had taken off. And, you know, I was having, I I don't know if it was their friends or family or what, but, you know, they were like, hey, they're missing. We don't know where they're at. You know, come find, they, we we ended up knowing where they were, but they had, uh, they had taken off and left town after she went missing. Um, Because I had got a hold of the media. I was getting a hold of local news stations and, you know, lucky for me, you know, they decided that they would run her story and, um, put her face out there and that she was missing. But um, after a few weeks, when they brought him in for questioning, they they got caught up in lying. Um, they, the, the police called him out on a lie that they had told. And then immediately they just, I'm not saying anything else without my attorney. And since they lawyered up, the police let him go. And that was the first last and only time they were ever brought in for questioning oh that's that's frustrating um yeah it it seems like it already it it doesn't line up with what she told you when when she mentioned that uh angie had left with a guy because we see on video that it's raven's car leaving right behind angie and then coming back shortly afterwards Um, so that's, yeah. And she had tried to tell Paul that her and Angie had left and went to McDonald's and police had the video and no, they don't. Yeah, they don't. That That's just a bold face lie. Well, so it's, it's, it's basically what she was trying to spin as a story. Wasn't what was captured on the surveillance video. Right. Well, did, Please talk to anyone else that was at the party, anyone that was willing to provide details uh, that might have seen Angie there or what happened. As far as the police know, um, Baron and Raven were the only two there. Okay. So there's, it hasn't been established that there was anyone else at that party. Right. Right. But we do know there, there had to have been somebody else there because somebody let her in. Because think, if either one of them would have opened the door, she wouldn't have went in. Okay. Yeah. Because, and then she also sent the message, Hey, I'm here. Everything's fine. Maybe she would yes. have sent that if, if everything wasn't fine and it was barren yes. or even that she was there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So you knew pretty early on where Angie had been, but you had no idea where she was uh, after this, this party. Um, her car was right. missing. You've already jumped through hoops trying to get the police involved, trying to call places, trying to do everything you can to to locate her. How worried were you during this time she was missing? Oh, I was terrified. Um, you know, because I know a lot of people think because somebody's an adult, you know, they, they can leave town if they want. They can go on vacation if they want. They can, but that's not how our family works. <laughs> you know, up up until I lost my mom, every time I would leave town, my mom knew I was going out of town. And, you know, it's just kind of a respect thing for your parents that, hey, you know, I'm not going to be home. I'm going out of town. I'm going here. 
okay, thanks. You know, call when you get back, you know, keep me updated. Um, so we, it was just, it was so out of character because anytime that girl went anywhere, I was her alarm clock because she couldn't hear alarm clocks for nothing. Um, she would, you know, Hey mom, I need to be up at this time. Will you start calling me? You know, and I, I did <laughs> just being mom, but, uh, yeah, so I, I knew that it wasn't just because she went out of town because she didn't answer her phone. She, you know, there was no, nothing of her on social media. There was, um, no communication with her friends, no communication with family, no communication with her sisters. Um, and, you know, like I had said earlier, her and her youngest sister, they video chatted almost every single day. Yeah. So you knew in your gut that something wasn't right. Yes. Well, it, it was 12 days after Angie vanished that her car was found missing. Uh, it was found uh, eight miles from the home where this party was at, I assume maybe in a way that had to be like welcome news for you because there's a clue, but at the same time it's troubling because, uh, her car is found, but she's not found. Yes. Were there any clues connected to, to her car that Lee's found as far as you know, when they did find it? I think there was, um, I know that they had found some things, but they had never, let us know what those things were. So they, they knew this car was there. They, they searched it. They did some, uh, I'm sure they went through it and examined it for whatever stuff they're looking for when they're looking for a car like that. Um, yeah, they just haven't really been vocal about what they found. Right. Right. That area where the car was found, did Angie have any ties there or any friends there? Was there any reason that she would have ever went there? No, no. And it was, uh, you, you could tell by the area that it was one of those areas where they don't, you know, they're not going to call the cops for a strange car sitting there. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, we, we had went, we had went over there to, you know, check out where her car was and, you know, and yeah, she, she didn't really have any connections over there. Yeah. Was there any kind of surveillance, any way to tell or see who dropped the car off or when it was dropped off, anything like that? Um, well, as how we found the car, um, I had got to wondering if she had OnStar in her car. Um, so I, you know, I called OnStar and I told him, I said, if she did have it, it wasn't hooked up. And they had told me that that didn't matter, that if there was OnStar in the car, they could still locate it, um, even if, you know, she didn't have it hooked up. Um, but she didn't have OnStar in the car. And then we got to thinking, well, her car was through a finance company. Finance companies have tracking. It was a buy here, pay here place. Um, they actually have tracking systems on their cars in case you don't pay so they can find their car and get it back. Um, so we gave that information to the police. So with that, they were able to find the car. Wow. And nothing really happened for a while after that. You've, you've got the stretch of time where there's not a, a whole lot going on. And then eight months after Angie went missing, uh, police received an anonymous tip and, and that would lead the case in an all new direction and solve one part of the mystery, but open up another one. 
Um, yeah. This tipster stated that Angie was dead and, and told police where to find her body. Uh, and sure yeah. enough, they, they did recover her uh, from a yard in the northeast part of Indianapolis. Uh, she was she was shot to death and they had did it in a manner to where she would suffer. Was, was this uh, information something they did not uh, readily release immediately to the public? Right. They had never released that. It was actually um, about a year or so later, a well-known reporter in Indianapolis who had been a reporter for years uh, started up a podcast. And he. the only thing we can think of is that he must have had some friends in the coroner's office um, because that the fact that she was shot to death was not public information. Um, because police, we knew what had happened to her, um, but nobody else did. Um, it was, it was something, and we only knew because the detective kind of messed up in telling us, um, but we would never do anything to jeopardize her case. So, you know, we, we never mentioned it, um, but somehow the reporter had got a hold of that information and, you know, just blatantly put it out there on his podcast, even though, you know, we had told him, hey, her death certificate sealed. They don't want it out. Um, and then somehow he ended up with the information. Well, I, I know it must have been an awful feeling not knowing where your daughter was. I talked to a lot of people that they say. Uh, the not knowing is unbearable, but then here you are with this new reality. Now you know where she is, but it's not the outcome you wanted for. How difficult was that for you? That it, it was hard. Um, we we had held on to hope for so long that we were going to find her and that we were going to find her alive. Wherever she was, we were going to find her. Um, and I, I, I it was like you, you thought the worst, but you hoped for the best. Um, so in your own way, you were kind of preparing for, you know, not so great news. Um, the January before they found her, Raven actually called me. And um, she was just kind of spouting on about, you know, herself and how great she is. And, you know, and just basically showing a lot of narcissistic behavior. Um, but at one point I had asked her, I said, well, what did she talk about? Because, you know, she was telling, yeah, we sat around and was talking and, you know, and all this other stuff. So I asked her, I said, well, what, what was you guys talking about? What did she say? And she goes, oh, you want to know what her last words were? And it was just the way that she had said that, which she denied saying that, but yeah, I I had a conversation with her and I know what happened. Um, it was the way that she said that, that just in the back of my mind, it was like, she did something to my daughter. What did you do to my, you know, that's, that's all I kept thinking. Um, but because I was trying to find my daughter, you know, I'm trying to hold myself back and, you know, trying to be nice to her and trying to be polite. Um, just so, you know, she'll keep talking and maybe I can get something, you know, I just, I just wanted to know where my daughter was, but it was just after she made that comment, 
it it resonated with you. It sounds like it it it, it, it really it really did. It yeah. did, and and it's always stuck with me. That comment has. So almost as if she's thumbing her nose, and and bragging. Yeah. So you've got this horrible news, not the outcome you wanted. Was this uh, home, this yard where she was buried in, the person that was there, did they have any connections to Angie or to Raven or uh, her boyfriend? Was there any kind of connection at all there? The people who were in the home at the time, um, they don't believe so. But they, um, the house was vacant when Angie went missing. There was nobody in there at that time. Uh, we were told that Barron's family had actually lived in that house at one point. And um, it was, I don't know how many years before that, but, you know, he, he was very familiar with that house in that area. And his parents only lived just a couple blocks away from there. Oh. Yes, that's a, a pretty big coincidence. How far was that from the home uh, where Angie was last seen at? How far away was it? That was about probably about 14, 14 minutes, I think. Okay. So it's it's 14, 15 minutes or, or my, yeah, it was uh, it was on the east side of Indianapolis and where she went missing was I think it was still on the east side, just a little bit more center. Okay, so it, it the, the person that lived in the home uh, at the time that Angie's body was found hadn't been living there when Angie went missing. Right. Yeah. It, was there any more information about who provided this tip? Were they ever identified and were they able to give any more information? Uh, that we're not too sure about. Hopefully it, 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 the police are in contact with that person and they're able to provide more information um, because, you know, it was that lead that helped recover Angie. So maybe they have some other helpful information. It, it seemed like, to me, when I was reading and researching this, it seemed like a case where there'd be an arrest that would come quickly. Um, you know, they know where your daughter was at. They have surveillance of when she was there, when her car left. It just seems mind-boggling there there wasn't an arrest. And despite all of everything that they do have, um, the case is unsolved. That's got to be, like, just unbelievably difficult for you to accept. Yes. Yes. Um, Lucky for us, though, there is a new Senate bill that passed just, I believe, about two months ago. Um, It's called Senate Bill 177. And with that bill, hopefully we'll be able to, we should be able to anyway, get her case turned over to the Indiana State Police and away from IMPD. And do you feel that will benefit the case? I do. Yeah. Is it because they have better uh, resources or or better detectives, do you think? Um, I don't know if it's so much um, that they have better detectives. Um, I know IMPD is just yeah, you know, they're it's full of homicides. They <laughs> they they're a very busy group of detectives and they just they're very overwhelmed with 
you know, with all the homicides that have been happening. I mean, even this year alone, the homicide rate is just unbelievable in Indianapolis. And it's like the, the cases that are still open, but older, they just keep getting pushed back and back and back. And they just, one detective just doesn't have that kind of time to devote to, to one case. And, and we understand that. Um, but we also need for them to understand that our daughter is important too. Sure. You don't want and her to slip through the cracks. Yes. And especially in a case that we feel, especially if it would have been handled properly from day one, I mean, our end result was probably going to be the same, but we might not be where we're at almost five years later, still waiting. Yeah, yeah. It it seems like on the surface, just based on the overwhelming stuff here, that one of two things happened, that Angie was lured to that party as part of a premeditated plan to harm her, or... Yeah, uh, she, something happened uh, unplanned there, uh, and then this stuff was done to cover it up. Um, is, is there any evidence to support either of those two scenarios? Um, there have been a few people that have came forward and um, have flat out said the whole thing was premeditated. Raven wanted Angie dead. Um. But we've also, uh, there's also another theory that it could have also have been a hit on Angie that maybe there was something that she knew too much of. Um, and the fact that her and Raven did not get along, um, that, you know, throw that monetary value out there. Um, there's, you know, there's court evidence that, you know, Raven was in the process of being evicted and um, behind on car loans. And then somehow after Angie went missing, she was able to pay her rent and, you know, get all her bills caught up. It's pretty uh, damning, even if it's circumstantial, it looks pretty, pretty uh, damning against them. Yeah. Yeah. And, as far as Baron McCullough and Raven Miller, what happened to them? Where are they at now? Um, when Angie, when her body was found, they took off to Phoenix, Arizona. And they remain there? Um, well, Raven does. Um, last we knew with Baron, he kind of fluctuates back and forth from Indiana to Georgia because he was in Georgia getting his CDL. Okay, so uh, it, it's it also doesn't look good when when you flee, you don't cooperate with the police, and then you flee from the state uh, where you're you know you're the last people to be associated with a missing person that winds up dead. So not looking real good against them. And um, uh, again, I, as as a parent, I you know I think if I were in your shoes, I'd be frustrated to know that there hasn't been an arrest. It, yes. After all this time, what do you think the, the reason for that might be? Is it because they lack a witness? They lack physical evidence? What do you think is holding I, back an arrest from happening? I, I believe it's an eyewitness. That's 
that's what they're wanting. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, they, they know who, what, why, when, where, how they know all of that. Um, but when they bring them in, they want to make sure that it is, you know, a case that they're going to come in, they're going to be guilty and, you know, they're heading straight out. They don't want any technicalities in there. They don't want them to get off. Um, I, you know, I, I, my whole life I had watched like law and order and, you know, all those crime TV shows like that. And it is just not the way it works. <laughs> they, uh, you know, it, cause you know, your perception of, of how things should go and, you know, well, they, why don't they just do this, you know? And once you actually are involved in it and, you know, you learn the process and you kind of see almost how screwed up that it really is. And, you know, and it's not necessarily um, like the detective's fault. You know, they have to be able to provide this in order to get warrants to do this, you know, and, and it's, it's just such a long process of everything that they have to do. And like with her case, um, everything that they have, they could, when the arrests are made, they can go for the death penalty with her case. Um, you know, will they, they may or they may not. Um, hopefully they will. But just kind of happened to, it, it's a waiting game. And it's, it's a very frustrating waiting game. Yeah. Um, it, after almost five years uh, of being with your daughter, and from her going from a missing person to a uh, a murder victim to no arrest after all this time, what's been the most yes. difficult and frustrating part of this entire ordeal for you? Um, just knowing that they're still out there. Um, you know, it's uh, the the worst part. Definitely, you know, losing your child. Um, but knowing that the people responsible for it are just kind of out there and, you know, living their lives and, you know, doing, doing the things they want to do. And, you know, they get to have families and spend holidays with their families and have children and, um, you know, start businesses and, you know, do all this other stuff while my daughter don't get that, you know, she, we, we had to spend 25 grand for a funeral because they took her life for why, you know, it just, you're, you're selfish. You're a coward. You, you had to kill a person while you had a gun and they had nothing. You know, you're, you're a coward. You're nobody. You're nothing. And you definitely don't deserve the oxygen on this planet. You're nothing but a murderer. And yet right now you get a walk free. You know, how many other people have you killed? How many people do you plan on killing? Yeah. You know, was she, was she the first one that you did this to? Or were there others? Yeah. And it's just like, it's a combination of everything. And it's, it's it's very frustrating and 
you know, and then we always have those people. Well, if I was you, I would do this. Or if I was in your shoes, I would do that. And it's like, yeah, trust me, <laughs> I want to. <laughs> but I also have three other daughters and a grandchild and, you know, and a husband. And I also know what Angie would want, you know, how she would want me to be and I, I know what she would have done if it would have been one of her sisters, but I, but I also know what, you know, she would expect everybody else to do. And that would be, you know, kind of wait it out and let everybody do their jobs and, you know, be here for her sisters and stuff. So, yeah. and, uh, you know, if there's any good thing to, to this, uh, uh, some kind of uh, positive is that maybe, more time goes by people that weren't willing to talk before will come forward uh, and more information will come out. I know that, you know, because of the double, double jeopardy laws in this country that when yeah. someone is tried, if they're not found guilty, if they're found innocent or whatever, they can't be retried. So I, I do understand that of wanting to have a, a airtight case to where they can try the people that did this and put them away and, and not have to worry about them somehow slipping away and, and, and getting, uh, off. Um, so hopefully when they do make arrest and, and, and bring this to trial, um, it will stick and, and you'll have some kind of justice, not that it will bring Angie back, but you'll know that the, the people that did this aren't uh, out on the street and, and worrying if they're going to do this to someone else. Yeah. I, that, that will definitely be, uh, that would just, that day, I can't wait for that day. Um, it, that day will be so great, but it's, it's like a bittersweet thing. You know, I, no matter what happens, I don't get my daughter back. Um, but at least I know that they wouldn't be out there able to do that to somebody else. They couldn't put somebody else's family through that. Yeah. Well, do you have any social media pages or, or pages set up for Angie's case where people can learn more about it? Um, yeah, we, we do have a Facebook page. It's called Justice for Angie. Um, every, you know, if, if I do a podcast or an interview or anything like that, you know, we always put that on there. Um, if there's any updates for anything, you know, I always make sure to put that on there. We've had such a huge support system, um, you know, through even complete strangers that we've just, it, it, it's been overwhelming to us. Um, just the amount of people that have contacted us from around the world and that have let us know that Angie's case has, you know, touched their life in one way or another, or, you know, I, I seen her story or I heard this podcast and I can't, I can't, I can't get your daughter out of my mind. And, um, and I've had a lot of dancers get a hold of me and, you know, tell me, thank you for being so public with everything that happened to her that I can be. Um, and, you know, and, and thank you for being so public with my feelings over everything because, you know, they, they had gotten a call to do a party and they didn't feel right about it. So they didn't go. Or they've now gotten out of dancing um, because 
Angie's story. Um, it's, it's just crazy to me how her story has actually impacted so many people. Uh, and I mean, you know, when she was missing, we, we had ransom demands, people calling us wanting money and, you know, it just, and then the horrible phone calls that we've gotten, you know, from day one, just from people contacting us, just, just for, just to be mean, you know, we've, we've changed a lot over the past five years, um, just due to all the trauma that has went along with everybody. And it's almost like you, you go through so much mental abuse on top of everything that you just, you turn into a completely different person. Yeah. And it's, there's a ripple effect to when this kind of thing happens, everyone is connected to the the person that's murdered is sort of their lives are changed uh, dramatically and and never the same again. Uh, So um, that's totally understandable. It seems like, uh, again, you've struggled since the very beginning to, to get uh, attention uh, for Angie's case and to um, get people involved. And you started looking early on. And I hope that somehow, some way your search for justice comes to an end and you get some answers and uh, your family, not that you'll ever have closure because that doesn't bring your daughter back, of course, but um, that you will have some kind of peace after or finding out that someone's been held accountable for this. Yeah. It, that just so looking forward to that day. <laughs> and hopefully it comes sooner rather than later. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing Angie's story with us. Um, and I'm, again, please uh, stay in touch because if you do get some good news that uh, there's been an arrest, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to do a follow-up uh, with you. Most definitely. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast called True Crime Buzz. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hi, I'm Brittany. And I'm Amber. And we're the hosts of True Crime Buzz. We believe there's nothing better than a good glass of wine. Or Diet Coke. And true crime. So buckle up and get ready, y'all. Because each week we like to pour a glass and discuss the most insane true crime stories ever. That's right. Murders, missing persons, cults, we cover it all. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. With new episodes every Tuesday. So grab a drink and join us. Cheers. Cheers.